Turn our Bibles to John chapter 20. John 20. I know we've been going through the Proverbs and Lord willing, we'll continue that uh, next week or, or even if we have time, maybe even tonight, who knows. But I um, just feel really compelled to look, look, at, look at John um, this morning. John chapter 20. Um, and if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. We'll read the chapter. John the Evangelist writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple to whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out, the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, uh, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, whom had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said that, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, the disciples were for fear of the Jews, came and stood. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you, are, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. And he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger Mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Oh, the, the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. He said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered them, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, of, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, we always ask that you would open up our entire being from our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we would be transformed by the gospel. And I particularly ask your help today. Uh, little no notes in planning. Um, if this is where you have led us, would, 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 you, would you show us why? May we come to see that you are Lord, you are Logos, you are life, you are light, you are Lamb. And all that we need is Jesus in the end. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son we pray. Amen.
Be seated. I don't know about you, but I, I love a good conspiracy. Now, when I say I like conspiracies, I like the fun conspiracies that don't involve screaming at the television when you have the news on. I'm talking about the fun conspiracies. I remember several years ago, um, my, the in-laws came over, and my father-in-law is one, and I actually think he's right in this, that country music isn't country music anymore. It's old, the old country, western sort of stuff, real country music. And I think he's probably right because they were actual men back then. But anyways, um, one of his favorite artists is, of course, the king, uh, and that is Elvis. And one day I thought I'd have a little fun with him. I'd Googled uh, why it is people believe Elvis is still alive and well. And that was a rabbit hole that was just so much fun. You ever get in those rabbit holes on the internet? You're thinking, I have no business doing this. I have better things to be doing in my life. But you just can't turn away. That is just a blast. I'm not recommending it. I'm just confessing to you. So we're sitting around eating dinner. I said, hey, hey, uh, Albage Clebbage, we affectionately refer to him as. Um, uh, I believe Elvis is still alive. Right? And I gave him like five good reasons. And off the top of my head, one was uh, his, his uh, gravestone is misspelled. His middle name is misspelled. It's spelled uh, A-A-R-O-N. But if you check his birth certificate, it is spelled A-R-O-N, Aaron. And, and th- th- then there are all of the sightings, right? Uh, there's a picture of him in his uh, Memphis home, right? Just looking out the front door. Don't know why no anyone else uh, caught this until the age of the internet, but he's right there. In fact, there was a video of a guy looking just like Elvis uh, roaming the, his Memphis home uh, j- just maybe 20 years ago. Uh, clearly has aged and, and fits the, the, the age profile that Elvis would be, being that he is still alive. And then there is the greatest evidence I can recall top of my head, and that is in the background of the first Home Alone movie. Hear me out. He is sitting right there, standing behind the mother who's trying to get back to her son. And she's stuck with all the holiday uh, traffic and stuff at the airport and can't get there. Elvis is sitting right there in the background. Look it up. You ain't paying attention anyways. Go ahead and look it up, right? That's just going to bother you. Elvis is sitting right back there. Now, obviously, I don't believe it, but I presented all this to my father-in-law and presented to him as if I believed it was absolute gospel. And all he did was he looked at me. You've met him before. And he says, well, I think he's dead. And that was the end of that conversation, right? We just went on to something else, all right? I do love a, a good, good conspiracy. And just, just seeing where people are when you just throw something crazy out there, just, just to see how, how they react. Well, if you read John chapter 20, you'll find that what it is you have here is this sense of conspiracy. Right? They are still in the process of mourning, particularly the disciples and those who follow Jesus. And all of a sudden, there is this rumor going around that is unbelievable. But those who are claiming seem to really believe it. And the rumor is the man that we witnessed was crucified by the Romans, verified to be dead by the soldiers, buried by loved ones and followers, guarded by the federal government, secured by Pilate himself, is all of a sudden walking around. That is more unbelievable than the king of rock and roll still hanging out. Maybe he's down there in Cuba with Tupac. I don't know. But here in chapter 20, John wants us to believe this conspiracy. But I want you to notice a a couple things what he does here. First of all, he wants us to see that with the resurrection of Jesus comes new creation. 
new creation. In fact, it's in the very first verse of chapter 20. It's easy to overlook these details because we see them as simple details. It says there, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. And notice this, it was still dark. It was still dark. Now, that detail is important. We don't have time to get into it. Maybe we do. I don't really know what I'm doing up here right now. But, 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 but in John's gospel, there is a contrast between light and darkness. For example, whenever Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him in the dark. Right? And, and you'll find in chapter 19, Nicodemus is one of those who, who uh, buries Jesus during the daytime. So what you get with Nicodemus when he pops up is he starts out in darkness, and then every time he pops up, he's in more and more light. Why? Because Jesus is declared, and he declares himself to be the light of the world. So this darkness-light contrast is all over the place. Another example off the top of my head is in John chapter 6 when Jesus is walking on the water, right? You remember, it's a storm, and the text tells us it was pitch dark outside. Side, so dark they couldn't navigate the, the stormy waters because they, they couldn't tell what, where was what and where the waves are coming from and how, how to manage the, the darkness until they see in the distance light. Light is coming towards them. Over and over again, we, we see this play on words. When Jesus heals the blind man, right, we see this picture that the man blind sees Jesus and believes in him. But those who could see, because they don't believe in Jesus, are in darkness. And that is why Jesus will then, after the healing of the blind men, proclaim in John 10, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me truly sees. And here we have Mary Magdalene getting up while it is still dark. And notice the timing of this. It's not only early, early morning before the sun has risen, but it is the first day of the week. It's Sunday. Now, no, I grew up thinking Monday was the first day of the week because that was the first day I had to go back to school. But Sunday is the first day of the week. Now, this is day one. Can we put it that way? Day one of, of a new week. Now, go back to the story of creation. What did God do on day one? He said, let there be lights. And there was light, and it was good. Now, notice what you have here. One is walking in the darkness to a tomb of darkness. Yet she sees Jesus is gone. You, you see you seen the plan on words? Maybe you still don't believe me that this pattern is going on in this text. Go down to chapter 19, or verse 19, rather. Verse 19. Now, now so you have that experience, and we'll, we'll come back to it. Mary Magdalene and Peter and John are there, and they're in their race and everything. But, but, but then Jesus appears to the disciples at the end here. And notice, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. You see it there? Well, John wants you to know that this is the, a new day of the week. You say that's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal because what it is we have here is John trying to tell the reader that with the resurrection of Christ, everything is new. Several weeks ago, I shared the uh, illustration of the man, a monk, who was charged by the Pope to reorganize our calendar. And so that's why uh, zero is supposed to mark the year of the birth of Jesus. And I made, I made the point that, you know, he had one job and he, he messed it up pretty bad by about five or six years, right? Jesus, according to our calendar, is probably born between four to six B.C., right? He got it off a little bit, and that's, that's okay. Um, but... but I'd like to argue that, that maybe the approach was wrong. Not that we should figure out when was Jesus born. History changed dramatically when Jesus walked out of the tomb. 
That is new creation. So what you get here in this picture is the first day of the week, the light of the world has overcome darkness. The tomb, the dark tomb of death, couldn't hold him anymore. Here we then have new creation. And the hope is, is that as Christ has been risen physically, so he shall raise us both physically upon our death and spiritually by faith. Though we were those things, we, 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 people say we are those things, and that may be our past. By coming to faith in Christ, we are giving new creation. Paul declares this as new creatures, new creation. And so John plays with this contrast back and forth. First day of the week, it is dark. The evening, and what do they say? They see Jesus clear as day. Not only that, we, we see that uh, uh, we are given a new message. I, I mentioned a conspiracy earlier, and you'll notice that Mary Magdalene comes, and we know there's other women with her, but John emphasizes her for his own purpose. She comes, and she finds at the tomb that the stone is rolled away, the guards are gone, and the tomb is empty. And her response is one of panic, because the assumption is the dead do not come back to life. Is, is, that, is that too elementary for us, right? And by the way, whenever I hear people critical of, of biblical times, believing everything was a miracle, is false. You read the Bible and they all know dead people don't come back to life, right? They know that. In fact, they're around death way more than we are. We have sanitized death. We've distanced ourselves from death. Someone dies, we, we walk out of a room and people take care of it. We don't see them again until the funeral, right? Here, people are around death all the time. They know that the dead stay dead. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb expecting a dead body. When she sees that the soldiers are gone, the tomb has the, the stone has been rolled away, she assumes that it is grave robbers. Grave robbery has been common throughout all of human history. Perhaps the most popular example of that in American history is the attempt to rob the grave of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, in fact, if you try to rob the grave of Abraham Lincoln, good luck. His son saw to it that would never happen again. I think he's on about 20 feet of, of ground. Concrete poured like all the way up. Like you will not get to that, right? But it was the Secret Service who at the time didn't protect the president. Um, they're the ones that uncovered the plot, right? Uh, so th this has been a common problem throughout history. And she assumes Jesus is a victim of this. And so she runs and, and tells the men, right? Now, can I just add a little footnote here? This is free. Won't charge you for it. And the footnote is that it is noteworthy that women are the first witnesses of the empty tomb. And that may be a, a small detail to us, but it's a major detail in terms of the historicity of the resurrection Jesus. At this time, a, a woman's testimony would not have been permissible in the court of law. You couldn't trust the word of a woman. Now, obviously that's wrong, okay? I'm just telling you history. Rather, you would only hear the, the words, the testimony of a man in the court of law. What you get in the Gospels are, all four of them, they want the reader to know the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus were women. Can I tell you why that's important? Because the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were women. If you were making up the story that Jesus conquered death, you were just making it up and you wanted everyone to believe you, at this time, you would not put the testimony on the words of women. You put it on men. But in the story, the men are the last ones to believe. It is the women who, who are courageous and bear testimony. Nevertheless, she, she runs and gets Peter and, and John. I love this about Peter and John. There's real rivalry between them. Remember, the disciples are probably teenage, 
teenagers. And so they think this is a race. If you read John's gospel, they go back and forth. This They literally race. And, and John tells us, I made it to the tomb first because I'm the fastest, not the brag. Right? I was a track star and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Then, then it says, Peter, not to be outdone, steps into the empty tomb first. So who's the real winner there, right? I mean, don't, don't you love that? Maybe you have kids who do this, right? You, you race and, and you let them win, right? Get to the car. But then you, you, you change the rule and you say, uh, whoever wins the one who touches the car first, I won, right? right? You ever play that game, right? You change the rules so that you can still win in the end. I doubt you ever did that, but, but that's what they do here. They have this goofy little race, and they come in, and they see exactly what Mary had told them. The body's missing. All of his linens and everything is sitting right there, but Jesus is gone. So what do they do? They run back. Why? Because there's a conspiracy starting to rise that he's alive, and they don't believe it. They believe the body's been stolen. Now they are in danger. They're going to run right, right back away, away from the empty tomb. But Mary stays there. And she stays there simply to mourn. You see it there in verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She, she, she is stuck right there. What have they done with my Lord? Just put yourself in her shoes. Well, what if this was your loved one? You come and you find the body missing. Why would anyone do this to, to, to someone like that? She is blinded by her tears, like literally here, because Jesus approaches her, which is a beautiful image. Jesus approaches her and he asks, why, why are you crying? Why? Because as we'll see that, that, that this is not a moment to cry. This is a moment to rejoice. But so long as she believes Jesus is still dead, the kingdom is no more. And still, as long as she still believes that, the only option is to weep. But the minute she realizes Jesus is alive is the minute her tears are wiped away and replaced with joy. And she's no longer blinded by tears, but can see clearly with, with joy. Why are you weeping? Well, she says it there in verse 13. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. See, she does not believe the dead can walk. He is not alive. She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she's blinded by her tears. She's in darkness. Who are you seeking? Why are you weeping? And she assumed he was a gardener. Can we just pause on that little detail? It's very important. John has developed this for about three or four chapters. The Bible opens up in a garden that then gets turned into a grave. Is that fair to say? Man and woman were placed in the Garden of Eden. And in that garden, because of their rebellion, it turned into a grave. Death was introduced. And as a, as a substitute, another animal was offered on their behalf. That garden got turned into a grave. And we have been living in this grave ever since. Is that fair to say? Surely the last two plus years have, have reminded us of the reality of death and the uncertainty of life and how anything can be just turned upside down in an instant. We live in a world of death, not just literal death, but practical death. Everything around us just decays. Everything around us gets destroyed. And, and, and you add to that the human nature of hate and, 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 and depression and sorrow and violence and, and discrimination, everything else that goes on. We live in a grave. The world is full of it. And what's interesting is 
Jesus is put in a grave. Is that, is, is that fair to say? And so far in the story, John wants you to know he is put in a grave, in a tomb. It's a place of the dead. The living don't go there. The dead go there. Yet the minute he is raised from the dead, it's not described as a tomb anymore. It's described as a garden. You you see what's happening here? Mankind turned the garden into a grave. Christ, in defeating death, has turned the grave back into a garden. You see why this this language of new creation is so important? No matter how bad things get, no matter how destructive we might become, the hope of the gospel is redemption, the beauty of life, that he can take the old and make it new. He can take what is ruined and refashion it, remake it, including you and me. So Jesus identifies himself. Jesus said to her, Mary, that's there in verse 16, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbana, which means teacher. She immediately knew who it was, right? And he said to her, don't don't, don't cling to me, right? I haven't ascended to the Father, right? Instead, I have to send you. And this is the new message. We saw new creation. This is the new message. Mary Magdalene, verse 18, went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. That's the message. That's the message. It really is that simple, isn't it? Having seen that Christ is alive, having believed, and having, having her eyes opened by him, right? She, she's gone from tears, right? Blinded by tears. Now, now she, she, she's, her eyes are open with joy. And she confesses that this is Jesus, the, the, her rabbi, her teacher. Her commission then is to go and tell the disciples he is risen. The first evangelist in the Bible is Mary Magdalene, according to John. Right here. And she went and said those things. And it is in that context we see it is still the first day of the week, verse 19, when the disciples then start to believe. And they too are sent with the same message as are we. I want you to also notice new peace. New peace. You'll notice there in verse, at the end of verse 19, also in verse 21, and in verse at the end of verse 26, Jesus will say the same thing. Now, it's a greeting. Peace be with you, right? That is a common Jewish greeting, much like the way we may say howdy uh, and, 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 and hi and hey and greetings and, and uh, whatever it might be. Right? We come in peace or whatever it might be, right? However it is we greet. Well, this is a common greeting at this time. Uh, now, at its core is more than hello, how are you? It's the, it is the Jewish theological hope of shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for meaning peace. But it means more than the lack of of conflict. It means uh, genuine peace. It is is to go back to the garden where man and God walk together in unity and reconciliation. The hope of shalom. And so they would greet each other with this. Peace be with you. Let, let, Let peace be between us. Let peace be among us. Let God bring his peace to us yet again. Now, now put that greeting in the context of the resurrection. The first time in John's gospel, Jesus encounters his disciples. He reminds them three times, now that he's alive, peace, peace, peace. If only modern man needed to hear that message, right? Not only in Christ do we have a new creation and we become new creatures. Not only in Christ are we given a new commission with a new message, but in Christ risen from the dead, we are giving new peace, real peace. 
After all, we live in a chaotic, destructive world. And yet what he offers us is peace. And you'll notice he tells it to the ten, right? Judas is gone. Thomas is absent, right? He, he, he probably uh, forgot to set his, his phone alarm. And so he missed the, the, the business meeting. So he's gone. And Jesus says peace to them twice. And then when, 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 when he then shows up, he says it again. Now, now notice here, at the root of peace is the belief Jesus is alive. Now, in the story about Thomas, this is where he gets the nickname Downey Thomas. A bit unfortunate, but, but nevertheless. He's called Downey Thomas because the disciples do what Mary was told to do. Tell everyone you know Jesus is alive. And they tell Thomas, Thomas, Jesus is alive. And his response is the same response everyone in history would be. The dead do not come back to life. So he says, unless I see the, 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 the evidence that he's alive, I will not believe. He doubles down on it. I refuse to believe he is alive. It's just a, it's just a silly conspiracy. Y'all have gotten caught up. You need to lay off of the internet. Stop Googling this stuff. So what does Jesus do? He appears and he says, there it is. Peace be with you. And he opens his, his arms. He shows his side and Thomas believes. Now, before we pick on Thomas, it's important to see that according to Luke's gospel, I think it's Luke 24, you'll see this. And even here in John chapter 20, Jesus does the same thing that he does for Thomas. He does it for the other disciples. Actually, look at verse 20, chapter 20, verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then there is again, peace be with you. So now Thomas is no different from the other disciples. I will not believe unless I see him. And what does he do? He shows him his, his arms, he shows him his side, and his answer is there at the end of verse 26, peace be with you. But here's what we need to see. What is Thomas's reaction? Verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord, my God. My Lord, my God. What John wants the reader to see is that there are only two options when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. Either you will crown him Lord and God as Thomas does, or you will do your best to crucify him again and get him back into that tomb. But he has already conquered death and he will not fit in there again. At the end of the day, the only question that matters throughout all of human history in our lives, we have to answer one question. Was Jesus risen bodily from the dead? If not, try to crucify him again if you want to. But if he is, how will you respond with faith or stubbornness, hard-heartedness? When Thomas realizes Christ has conquered the grave, he gets everything we've talked about. This is new creation. This is new peace. This is a new message. And at its root is the fundamental belief that Jesus, the one who defeated death, is Lord and God in flesh. What a, what a confession this is for us. And we are to see that at the root of peace is this right here. Christ risen from the dead is Lord and Savior. God in flesh. Christianity really isn't more complicated than that. Has Christ been risen from dead? 
it's common for whenever, particularly uh, young adults come and they're, they're struggling with issues of apologetics. You know, uh, what about this? Uh, what about what this critic says? And how do we think about these issues? And, and many of them are common questions. And let's just say they come and they say, well, how do you reconcile these two supposed contradictions? I don't think the Bible contradicts. I will often say we can deal with that issue. We really can. But can we first answer one simple question with this critic who's really getting on you? Is Christ risen from the dead? That is more important than any other apologetic question we could have. It's more important than any question we could ever ask ourselves or ask the world. Is Christ, and what has Christ been risen from the dead? That's the question we have to answer. And if he is, there is only one response that is appropriate. To fall on our knees like Thomas and confess, my Lord, my God, my Savior. Well, we've got to move quickly. Finally, new life is given. Jesus says in verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us, right? And then notice how John ends this chapter. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Well, that's a bummer, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to know more about that? Like, I'm sorry, John, can we just come over by the campfire, right? It's a cute book, but I'd like to know the other details, right? We, we do this today. You, you, can, you can watch a show on whatever streaming service, television, whatever it is. And if you want to, you can spend hours more listening to podcasts about the show, YouTube videos about the show, all this sort of stuff, right? We've grown accustomed to there's the thing, and then there's the thing around the thing, right? You know, we've, we, we've gotten accustomed to that. What does John do? He said, well, here's the thing. And there's more things, but I ain't going to tell you, right? There, there is no sequel to the Gospel of John. Right Now, you and I, we want to know more, but John is reminding us that what is contained within these chapters is more than sufficient to keep you and me busy for a lifetime. And I can attest to that. I've taught on the Gospel of John over and over again, probably know it better than any other book of the Bible, and there's still stuff there that you just marvel at the beauty of Christ and as he is presented here. Other things uh, have been uh, that Jesus did other signs, which are not written in this book. Notice this, verse 31. But these are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see it there? The whole point of the entire book, especially the climax, is that, that these things have been written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. So whenever he told the story of turning water into wine, he wasn't just trying to keep, give you an entertaining story. He's trying to tell you about Jesus, a new creation. When he's telling you about, about healing the blind man, he, he's not entertaining you with a magic trick. He's trying to tell you that Jesus is the light of the world. Whenever he feeds a multitude in the desert, he's just not trying to have you marvel at how incredibly gifted and humanitarian he is. What he's wanting you to see is that Jesus is the bread of life. And when he is risen from the dead, he's just not trying to finish the story and wrap it up in a cute bow. After all, you can't have your bad guy die or your good guy die in the end. Rather, he writes all of these things to point you to one conclusion. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And by believing in him, like Mary Magdalene, like Peter and John, like Thomas, you may have life. And life in his Nay, that's the hope of the gospel. He's been telling us this from the very beginning. In John chapter 3, when he's meeting with the man in darkness, don't you see, Nicodemus? For God so loved the world, he gave his son, 
so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have life. Everlasting life. At the end of the day, what you have here is the hope of the gospel. In Christ, we have new creation. In Christ, we, we are given a new message. Not, not good advice, but good news to a world that desperately needs to believe it. We are given a new peace. Not given to us by an economy or by political leaders, or by culture, or by family, or friends, or influence, or anything, but it comes exclusively by Christ risen from the grave. And in Him, we are given new life. doesn't matter our past. doesn't matter accusations. doesn't matter our experiences. doesn't matter any of that sort of stuff. What matters is, if Christ has risen from the dead, so shall He raise me now. I don't know why we have to be in this chapter today. But I do believe that what you have here is not conspiracy, but hope. Not story, but life. Not a myth, but good news. If only we would believe it. And I suspect there may be some here who have never embraced the gospel of Jesus. And I beg of you today. Confess that he is Lord and God. And I bet there are many here today who, 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 have, who have under the weight of, of either criticism or under the weight of, of despair, under the weight of just wanting to give up. I beg of you today to believe the simple message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is God in flesh. Jesus Christ is Savior. And he always will be because the grave has no hold on him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.